them that they will learn that truth this year. Help us as we are among those who don't know you, that we will be able to speak your truth in a way that opens their eyes, that they will be saved. We all have those we know and love who have not come to you as Lord and Savior. cry out to you for their souls. Please save them, Heavenly Father. Please save them and help us to lead them to you. We are your servants. We are your children. And we long to do what's pleasing to you, Heavenly Father. Give us the eyes, the ears, the legs, and the hands to do your will. We pray this long precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And then I will have you turn to Isaiah, and we will be in chapter 11 uh, this morning, and read verses 1 through 10. Last week, we were with the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, and there was, uh, we focused mostly on the idea of the wonderful counselor. Here is this baby born, and, and miraculously, it calls us to him. Wonderful counselor, he's the savior of the world. And the backdrop again of Isaiah as he writes these prophecies is their sin. In fact, going back to Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about the wickedness of Judah. And in fact, Judah and Israel are split right now, and Israel's deep into sin, and Judah's got their own wickedness. And I love how uh, Alec uh, Mapier sets this up. Mapier is a great uh, Old Testament scholar, and, and he wrote this. He said here, talking with this passage, Isaiah extends to the remnants the hope of the royal Messiah. Again, it is specifically a word of assurance for the dark days of the Assyrian threat. And that's what he's writing into. He's prophesying Assyria's going to attack you and destroy Israel and weaken Judah. And as Mahir continues on, it's written for assurance for the dark days of the Assyrian threat, but contains in itself clear indication that its fulfillment is for a time yet to come. And then he writes this, Undated hope is a living, ever-present assurance for God's people. And it is at this point that the passage speaks as much to the church today as in Isaiah's time. And you will notice that as we read that, there's this hope still yet to come that is in this prophecy as well. And it all revolves around the Messiah. And so let me uh, read this passage for us. It's Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirits of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not 
judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations and his resting place shall be glorious. Word of the Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your hope that is in your word. And we ask that as we look at it, you will speak your truth into our hearts. Strengthen us in the knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. I remember my uh, seminary days, and uh, there were a few classes, several actually, where we would have to write deep papers, the, the scholarly 15 to 20 page papers, and they were well researched, and, and you spend hours and hours on the research. And then when it came time to actually type the paper itself, we had all, you know, I'd have all the notes and, and my outline, and, and usually the rule of thumb for most of us was if we could type one page per hour, we were doing pretty good. We uh, were doing pretty well. You see right there, I'll have to go back and correct that paper. You had to make sure the ground was right and, and all of the, uh, the languages you were dealing with were right. And so about a page an hour, which means you can't sit down and write a 20-page paper in one sitting. Because there's other papers to write, there's tests to study for, there's classes to take, and we have jobs, and we have families, a lot of us, and, and life. And so you try to carve out a few hours one day, and then a few, you know, a couple days later, maybe a few more hours, four hours here, and three hours here. And as I would do this, uh, what I would do is, is type out this paper and then save it and, and on my laptop, then email it to myself in case something happened to my computer that I knew I had it somewhere. But then when I would start writing again on this paper that maybe I spent, uh, who knows how many hours on, 8, 10, 12, however many pages I'm into it, uh, I, would, I wouldn't start with the paper I had written. I would copy that, put it in a different document, shut the first one, and then just start with this one, because if something happened, and with me and computer, something always seems to happen, but if something happened, I could just get rid of that and at least go back to where I was before. And I found that all the hard way my 
that point, this point, I, I made a mess of things. And that's, that's basically the idea that Isaiah is writing for us here. As he uses this imagery in chapter 11, in, in verse 1, of, of a felled tree. Here we have a tree that, that's been felled, and all we have is a stump. We're left with this stump. And this is, uh, of course, a metaphor, R.C. Sproul writes, all that is left of the Davidic dynasty is a stump. We had King David and then several kings since then, and, and here we are. All signs of life and vitality are gone. Um, and there's some hidden signs of life here. But we just have this stump. But from this stump comes forth a shoot from this stump of Jesse. Now who's Jesse? Some might ask. Well, Jesse is actually David's father, King David's father. And, and there are many prophecies that tell us that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. We, we know that. And so you got to think, well, why didn't Isaiah just say, from the line of David? Why is he being so dramatic here? The stump of Jesse? Why why is he saying it this way? Well, he's showing us something right away. And he's just not going back to uh, David's disappointing descendants. He's actually going to reset. He's going to go back. We have a new David. If Jesse is producing a, a son here, it's David. And so he said, we're not going to start with David. We're actually going to go back before David. We're going to hit the reset button. This is not just another uh, disappointing Davidic descendant, if you want to use that alliteration, but we're starting and, and other prophets pick up on this. Ezekiel is one of them that does, and, and there are others, but Ezekiel in uh, chapter 34 writes, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, who calls the Messiah David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Uh, my servant David shall be prince among them. It's, it's as though the, the prophets are saying, uh, we're not going to even uh, go with the disappointing kings after David. We're going to go all the way. We've got a whole new system here. In fact, David's descendants are exactly why we're left with a stump. You know, Solomon started out pretty well. He was wise and asked for wisdom, but then uh, he ended up with way too many wives, and some of them were taking his heart away, and he, he started uh, falling into this idolatry, and, and the kingdom was split. But there's something better to come. And the prophet wants his readers to know that. And he sticks with this idea of David a little bit when he said, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Because this is what happened. With King David back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when uh, Samuel came and Saul was still king, uh, Saul was still around, but, but Samuel came to Jesse and, and uh, he was told the king was going to come from one of Jesse's sons and, and it was David. And in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, it reads that uh, Samuel anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day. And so the prophet is saying, 
make some quick observations uh, with what he's saying here. Uh, he talks about the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And in the Old Testament, uh, quite often when these two words are put together, uh, what they are meant is uh, the spirit of wisdom is this general uh, characteristic, if you will. Kind of this, this reservoir of right thinking and understanding is then the power to see uh, to the heart of the issue. Now one of the problems with the kings that have come from the line of David is uh, they lack uh, the usual understanding sometimes, well, see quite often, I guess, wisdom as well as the lack. Jesus, on the other hand, when we see his life, he, only, he not only knew uh, he had this great wisdom, but he knew uh, when people tried to treat him up, what was really going on. Even Satan in the wilderness, he could see through Satan because he had all this wisdom and he understood what Satan was getting at. The Pharisees and, and Sadducees and everyone else, when they tried to trick him up, Jesus had this great wealth of, of wisdom and he could see right through the heart of the issues. He knew what's really going on. He also will have the spirit of counsel and light. And in this uh, Old Testament uh, type setting, uh, think military. Basically, the ability to devise a, a correct and right course of action, and then the uh, personal prowess to see it through. And once again, many kings have failed on one or maybe both of these ideas. They, they didn't devise a right course of action, or sometimes when they did, they just didn't have the intestinal fortitude to actually pull it off. They would get tripped up along the way. They would get enticed with other things. Jesus, of course, in his life, had the right course and certainly the promise to follow through. He followed through all the cross. The right course of action and, and the, the light to actually be able to do it. He'll have the, the spirit of knowledge of the Lord, and once again, many of David's descendants would fail on, on these uh, issues as well. And, and in that phrase, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, if you were to see it in its Hebrew, the dominant noun in it is the Lord. In other words, true knowledge shows itself in a life of reverence. In, in relation to the Lord, uh, fear is this idea of moral concern, living rightly, and, and, and it motivates obedience, and, and it molds our conduct, and it shows true loyalty and worship, and of course Christ had all of these things. And, and that's what uh, verse 3 tells us. These are the things that Christ and delights in to this very day. And I, I point these out, and, and it's interesting to know that, that when we pray and, and when we desire to be like Christ, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us, these are the things we're praying for. 
thing, but actually live lives a different way. Because Christ didn't do that. He was perfectly um, coherent in his thoughts and in his life. He was not enticed by power. He was not enticed by riches. This is another problem that the kings had of Israel and Judah. They were so easily enticed and so easily swayed um, and partial to those who had riches, those who were powerful, those who seemed that they could provide some kind of uh, protection. But Christ, his character and his rule and his actions were all in perfect harmony. And that's what he's getting at in the first And then he also mentions that the, the, the rod of his mouth and with the, the breath of his lips, and you notice that in verse 4 too, the, the, the strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And we get this, this judgment idea in there. Matthieu again writes this, the king needs no other display of power and no other weapon of enforcement than the bare word that he speaks. All the other kings were concerned about military might and, and how they could align with other kings that were even stronger and be the strongest military they could be in. And this king, uh, just the word of his mouth. And we see that in Revelation 19 as well. Uh, when John is, is writing uh, in Revelation, he writes this, from his mouth, he's speaking of Jesus uh, in, his, in his conquering, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. This is very word. And when we think his very word spoke creation into being, he can do this. He's got that power in his word. Let there be light, and there's light. It's interesting in John chapter 18, uh, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And the soldiers fell down. Power of his word knocked them down literally. And with the Lord's breath and the Holy Spirit, there is in here as well this, this uh, constant suggestion of, of the power to effect change. There's judgment, but also this idea that things are going to change. And that's the idea in verse 5 of the belts. And the, the belt gets mentioned twice. This belt symbolizes the readiness for action. When a king uh, would get dressed for battle, he would put on his clothes and then finally put on the belt. And that's where the sheath was and he had his sword. He was ready. Once that belt was on, he was ready to go. It's kind of like, uh, for those of you uh, that, that try to get people off the door and say, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready, Dad. No, really, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready, Dad. Do you have your shoes on? No. Well, you're not ready. When you get the shoes on, I know you're ready to walk out the door. And that's kind of what the belt is. He's ready to go. And we think of Jesus being born uh, into the world and the shepherds just sitting on a quiet night on a hill watching sheep and an angel appear. 
a peek into the future, but we also get it too, starting in verse 6. And I'm not going to go through all of this in verses 6 through 10, but there are some neat things that I do want to point out. Uh, the wolf, in verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And that word gets translated dwell uh, different ways. He shall live with the lamb. And there's other ways. The, the definition of that word, if you will, in, in the Hebrew would be to welcome as a temporary resident, uh, protected by the rules of hospitality, if you will. It's as though, and this almost reads like a, a childhood book, uh, it's as though the lamb is sitting in his house and he sees this wolf walking by and opens up his door and says, Wolf, come on in! And everything I have is yours and I will take care of you and help you however you need help until you uh, figure out where you're going. Uh, it's it's uh, this really kind of neat picture, delightful, I think is what one commentator uses, this delightful image of the lamb opening his door saying, Wolf, come on in. Sit down. Say as long as you want. And I also notice in verse 6 uh, at the end, a little child shall be there. And we see some of the animals. There's a wolf and, and a leopard, and they're alive, and a little child. It's not only that the little child is safe, but the little child shall lead them. And we're getting hints here, and this is intentional, of going back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, when God told uh, Adam in verse 28 that you'll have to make it over all creatures. And then you have to that Here's this child with dominion over a lion. He leads them. And in verse 7, we see the cow and the bear eating the same thing, and, and the lion and, and the ox also eating the same thing. There's this change of nature. There's this reconciliation, and, and there's no hostilities. There's no fear among these animals. They're not eating each other. They're eating the same thing. And, and what are with a lot of this language, it's as though the Garden of Eden is being restored. All of a sudden, Isaiah's taking us back to birth. Oh, this is way back then. Then a king, a military king. This reset button is going back even further than King David. We're, we're going back to especially in verse 8. Notice that. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. A baby playing over the whole of the cobra. And, and if you were to, to uh, look up that word cobra and, and adder, also I have adder in there, and these words are somewhat uh, difficult to translate sometimes, but, but for cobra, you could translate that as venomous serpent. Child is going to play over the whole of this venomous serpent without any fear. The serpent can't hurt you. And that also takes us back to Genesis. It was the serpent who had caused Adam and Eve to sin with the temptation to eat the fruits. And, and they did. 
ending the day when, within that family, he will shoot forth. In the Old Testament, this is a dilemma awaiting resolution. How do we get a Messiah who's the root of his own family that he's born into? A dilemma awaiting a resolution until it gets resolved.
the computer on the 